Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. And if you guys are visiting with us this morning, we are actually starting a new series. If you would, bow your heads with me and join in prayer. It's just a way to silence the room quicker. So you can grab one of the Bibles placed around the room. You can open to the book of Galatians. We're going to be in Galatians this morning, chapter 5. Galatians is in the New Testament, right before Ephesians, right after 2 Corinthians. We're starting a new series this morning called The Call. And we're going to be doing this for six weeks, and we're going to be looking at what it is to, uh, what Christians are called to. We understand that what we are called from, oftentimes, we are called from a, uh, uh, a, a child of darkness to a child of God. What exactly does that mean, and what does it mean uh, for a Christian to live this out? What are we called to exactly? And that's what we're going to look at today. Um, we, we firmly believe this. If you're new and if you're visiting here at Gospel Community Church, we firmly believe this. That a relationship with God is not something that we earn through our behavior. You, you, you have to, to hear that. A relationship with God is not something that we earn through our behavior. It's not something that we maintain through our behavior as well. But we understand this. That a Christian is called to live a certain way and our behavior and our actions do impact our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And so they are important, very important, but we don't understand this is the way in which we come to a relationship with God or maintain that relationship. We would actually uh, call that legalism, which we're going to look at today, but we believe that Christians are called to live a certain way. And so if you're here, you're visiting, and you are a new Christian, this is great to see what exactly it is to be a follower of Christ, what a follower of Christ is called to. If you've been a Christian for a while, this is a good reminder. And if you are a non-Christian, it's also a great way for you to listen in and hear what it is to be Christian, what Christians are called to, and to count the cost, as Jesus says in Luke's gospel. Today we're going to look at this, that a Christian is called to freedom, and I would say true freedom. And so if there's two words to walk away with and remember today, it's true freedom. So a Christian is called to true freedom. Let's pray and... uh, We'll dive in. Fathers, we open your word. I pray that we would pause to recognize that these are your words that you have chosen to speak. That we have a God who loves us so much, you've given us a written word that we can hear from you and that we can know you. Father, as I preach your word, I pray that you would speak through me today what you want to communicate, but it would be faithful to your word. I pray that we understand the authority is not me and it's not man, it is your word. But I pray that we would uh, rejoice and celebrate in all that it is to hear from you through your word. And I pray you would speak to us. I pray you would um, convict us. Father, I pray that our hearts would not be hardened today, but they would be open and soft and receptive to hear from you. And I pray that our hearts would be encouraged today by the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Galatians chapter 5, we're going to be just looking at a few verses today, verses 13 through 15, and here's what I'd say, is that a Christian is called to true freedom, and that our, our, our country values freedom. Freedom is something that we understand, that we value. In fact, last weekend, we just celebrated Memorial Day, and Memorial Day is a day that we take to honor and remember 
the soldiers of our country that have fought for our freedom. So we understand that this freedom that we have in our country has come with a cost, a great cost of people's lives. And so that day is, is a memorial, it's an honor to them and to recognize the freedom that we have and, and what was paid for us to have that freedom. Freedom is something that our culture not only values, I would say freedom is something that our culture worships. Freedom in a sense has become a God. And what I mean by that is what we want at the end of the day and what people say they want is they just want total and complete autonomy. They want total and complete freedom. They want total and complete um, separation from anything uh, or anyone telling them what they can and cannot do. And what we want is a life of no restrictions. Freedom is valued. Tom Petty writes a song about it. People talk about it. But I think at the end of the day, we would have to be willing to ask ourselves this question is what is true freedom? And does the freedom that you are trying to find actually lead to true freedom? And what I mean by that is this, is that if your goal in life is to have no restrictions and to have no one tell you what to do and that the way you would identify a, a just awesome life would be simply by you doing what you want to do anytime that you want to do it, say then at the end of the day, then what that is, is that you are actually a slave to yourself and being your own God and then living up to your own rules that you've even laid out for yourself, which by the way, you will not live up to and uphold. And so at the end of the day, I would say that's not true freedom. I would say that true freedom is not doing whatever you want to do. I would also say that true freedom is not looking at how we have lived our lives and how we measure up or, or, or seeking a conquest of self-pleasure. I would say that true freedom, really true freedom, can only be found in Christ and is only purchased by Christ. In summary, I think what Paul is saying here is something like this. That child of God, you are free and you are no longer a slave, but a child of God is free to love, a child of God is free to serve, and a child of God is free to obey, knowing full well that Christ has obeyed perfectly. And, and in a lot of ways, the book of Galatians is like a treatise for Paul or a thesis paper on salvation. And Paul is adamant, passionate throughout this book to convey what salvation is from what salvation is not. He is adamant and, and passionate to, to go against the message that's being communicated. The first four chapters of this book is actually talking about what salvation is not and what salvation is and those that are preaching a false gospel. And when I say that Paul is passionate, let me just read some verses from Galatians first so we have a framework of where we're going today to see Paul's passion conveyed for this false teaching and this false gospel that's being preached in uh, Galatia. Galatia is a, re a region in modern day Turkey, uh, a, a region where there was likely many church plants, many churches, but there's this message that's being brought in by this group of people called the Judaizers. Some uh, sometimes called circumcision party, which those two words should never go together. And these people think that they are a cut above the rest. Not my joke, Scott, Scott, Scott McKnight, that is Scott McKnight's joke. So if it falls flat, it's on Scott McKnight. Here's Paul's passion. Galatians 1.9. Let me read these so, so, so you guys can see. Paul generally spins, uh, spins the opening part of his letter just letting the saints know how thankful he is to them. Like Paul wastes no time here getting to work. 
And he says, as, as we have said before, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to, to the one you received, let him be a curse. Greek word there means anathema. Let him be cut off and cut out completely. Like this is not soft language. Paul's saying if someone's preaching you a gospel other than the one that we've preached, the true gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be a curse. Let him be cast out. Galatians 5.10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty Bear the wrath, bear the punishment, whoever he is. Strong, strong language here for what's being preached and taught by this group of people. Galatians 5.12 says this, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, right? It's Paul who wrote the most of the New Testament stating these things. He has a passion. Why? Paul's passion is that the gospel message is protected, pure, and unadulterated for what it is. It is a salvation message that is only by grace, by God's grace, through faith in Christ alone. And when you add anything to that, and that's what this party and this group of people were doing, the Judaizers, they were coming and saying, actually, it's Jesus plus. And so when you add anything to what Jesus has done, then it's no longer the gospel message. It's actually a false gospel. So whenever you say Jesus plus circumcision in order to be in the family of God, in order to be right with God, in order to be a child of God, what you've now just done is you've made null and void what the true gospel is because now you've said that Christ's work is not enough and so now what it is is it's Christ plus circumcision and that's what I need to truly be a Christian. And you can see Paul's passion for that. He's like, that's absolutely not it. You know something that I love about Paul is in uh, Philippians uh, chapter one, there's a group of people that are preaching with bad motives, right? And some of you guys know this story, but they come to him and they're like, hey, there's this group of people that are preaching with bad motives. And Paul's like, "Are they, are they preaching Christ crucified? And, and he's like, yes, well then let him preach. Paul's passion is not toward figuring out what everyone's motives are. Paul's passion is protecting and guarding the message of the gospel. If you want to see Paul come alive, if you want to see Paul unhinged, preach a message other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he's like, are, are they preaching Christ crucified? Great, let them preach on. As long as they're not tainting the message. And, and here's Paul's theology. We, we can see it unpacked in, in these few verses here, but but we start to get a grasp of what Paul's writing. These letters, these epistles, these are called occasional letters because Paul was writing to an occasion. This occasion is this group of people trying to completely come in and tell people that salvation is Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus anything is not the gospel. So he says this in Galatians 2, 15 through 16. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. The word justified there actually means declared righteous, declared guiltless. It, it is a legal standing with God. That a person is not justified by works of the law through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, guiltless, righteous by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. By works of the law, no one will be declared righteous before God. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Big statement. Galatians 5.2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are, listen, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Oh my goodness. In other words, as soon as you adopt a salvation plus anything to get right with God, you have fallen away from the message of the gospel 
and you have fallen away from grace. He goes on to say, Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only, only faith working through love. Those are big statements. And that's what Paul's been unpacking through this letter to the Galatians passionately. And I would say this, that today this is a passionate topic. The gospel is a passionate message. And when people try to preach something other than the gospel, then what you do is you take away from Christ. To be honest, that's why I reject, completely reject, Roman Catholicism's view of purgatory. Because purgatory is spending time atoning and paying for something, and, and a statement of that says that what Christ did is not enough, so I need to do more. But the reality is, is that many of us can live our lives as though it, it's, it's, it's our obedience and it's our rule following that is earning us God's love and approval and acceptance. And so when we get to verse 13, which let's look at now, Galatians 5.13, that's where we're entering into the story with this fierce passion that Paul has. And he says this, for... For is a conjunction, right? And we say that for and therefore are generally there for a reason. They're connecting the previous statements, paragraphs, sentences, or thought. And so here, this is for a reason because Paul has just unpacked what the gospel is from what it's not. But now he's saying that for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, what is Paul referring to? He's referring to a freedom that we have in Christ. He's referring to a freedom that only Christ provides. He's referring to this, that for many people in the room, I, I, I hope this would be true for you, that you could read this today, and if you are a Christian, that this would be like a refreshment. And if you are not, you could know and understand that gospel is not Jesus plus anything you do. It is God's grace and Jesus and everything he has done. That's the gospel message. And anything that you try to do to earn God's favor on top of that, the result of that is slavery. Because now you are trying to earn something that Christ fully and freely gives. And in fact, we could say this, that Christ on the cross in his dying breath did not say, earn it. He did not say, almost. He did not say, just about. What did Christ say with his dying breath? It is finished. It's the message. It is finished. Anything you add to that is you abandoning the gospel. And Paul's saying, you're not a slave. You were called to freedom, brothers. There's people in the room that would say, I'm exhausted. That was Martin Luther's thing. He was exhausted from trying to appease God through his works and through his efforts and through his moral performance, and he was exhausted. And there's people that are in this room that are exhausted because your understanding of Christianity is that I need to obey God in order for God to love and approve and accept me. And what Paul has been saying is that is legalism, that is not the gospel. It is Jesus plus something, and you were saved from that, and you were called to freedom. You, you, you are free from trying to perform. You're free from trying to save yourself. And that's what Paul is trying to convey. Legalism demands responsibility without freedom. Legalism demands responsibility without freedom. And Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, you are free because of what Christ accomplished. When I was 16 years old, I, uh, I got a lot of parking tickets 
my mom's with us today. And so I've always said, I don't know how my mom survived me and my sister. So she's a saint and I'm thankful for her. She went through a lot and we put her through a lot. So she knows all these stories. She won't be shocked. When I was 16, I decided that I was going to be free and no one could tell me what to do. And I lived a good portion of my life like that, and including uh, uh, the city of Roseburg. So I got a lot of parking tickets uh, around uh, Roseburg High School, and I was like, I'm not paying any of them. So no one's going to make me pay these tickets. I'm not paying these tickets. I'm just not going to do it. So I didn't. And then one day, I came out to my vehicle, and there was a boot on it this is restrictive. It's a bit extreme. So I decided to drive the boot off. Yeah. And so soon after that, the, the police came and what happened? Well, I had accrued all this debt from all these tickets that went unpaid. And now I had done something more. And he actually, uh, he was like, Hey, did you try to drive, drive the boot off this? I was like, absolutely not. And, uh, and, and he said, here, I'll never forget this. He's like, Hey, if you're, if you shoot straight with me, you're honest with me, then then we'll do whatever we're going to do or go easy on you. Well, I was like, man, that sounds like an incredible offer. So I took it and that's not what happened. So I got destruction of city property, destruction of government property. I got disorderly conduct and it was like the book just rolled, right? And now I had already had this debt, but now I had an extreme debt, right? And so I remember working a good portion of my summer to help pay off some of my debt, which I would say probably my parents paid the majority of that, but I, I, I had accrued this debt. And, and here's how debt works. Either this, Either we pay for our debt or someone else pays our debt for us. But I'm not free from this debt that I owe to the city, to the government, or anything like that unless it's paid off. Same goes for posting a bail. If you post a bail for someone, the way that you're going to get free out of jail is either someone's going to post a bail for you or you're going to serve your time. An exchange has to be made in order for freedom to take place. I did community service as a kid. That was another way to pay off fines. Here's what Paul is saying. As a Christian and as a child of God, you're debt-free. And here's why. Either you will live your life trying to pay off your debt before God, which is massive and which you are incapable of doing, or you will trust in the fact that Christ paid your debt perfectly through his life, death, and resurrection. So a Christian is debt-free through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's trying to convey. That's what he's trying to say. And for many of us, we need to hear that because we are exhausted and have fallen back into a slavery of adding something to the work that Jesus Christ has done and accomplished perfectly. Child of God, let me say this. You are free from guilt. You are free from shame. You are free from making a self-payment. You are freed from wrath and punishment because Jesus bore it. You are free from your failures because your life is hidden in Christ's success. You are free from shortcomings and trying to earn God's love. You are free from man's approval. You are free from trying to gain and earn God's love and approval because Christ has earned it for you. You are freed from measuring up. For those in the room that would struggle with legalism, what you need to believe is that Christ has done enough and that you're free. But then he goes into the second part of this sentence and he says, only this, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So you are guiltless and you are declared righteous and you are free, but now he says this, do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Paul uses this flesh language often. And what Paul is referring to there is that inside of us, there is this fleshly human part, even for the child of God that is still alive. And what that is, is it's our sinful nature still wanting to rebel against God. So Martin Luther said this saying, it was uh, simul justus 
at the cotter. And what that meant is that we are simultaneously justified, righteous before God, and simultaneously sinful at the same time. So what he's saying is that there is this, in a sense, war that goes on. But what Paul is saying, since you have been bought at such an incredible price, what he's saying now is don't use your freedom as an opportunity for sin. This is, this is a, a response from people that don't actually understand the magnitude of grace in the gospel is that they go, sweet. So what you're saying is God loves me and I have his full approval and acceptance based upon nothing that I do. And so now what I can do is I can just go do whatever I want. And we would say, no, that's actually called license or loose living or licentious living. And what, what that would say where legalism demands responsibility without freedom, license demands freedom without responsibility. And here's the thing. Christ paid such a massive price for you to go free that submitting yourself to slavery again or submitting yourself to just sin is actually you not you being free at all. It's actually you being a slave, just another type of slave to another type of sin. And so in that, you reject Christ because you say Christ is not enough. And so you seek a conquest of pleasure and you live life as being your own God trying to find something in this world that can satisfy you. And so therefore, what you do is you become a slave to these desires, a slave to the pleasure, and a slave to basically just living for the everything that makes you satisfied. I'd say that's not freedom, that's actually slavery that Christ redeemed you from. It would be like this. Imagine this. Imagine your car breaks down on, on some railroad tracks. And you are in there broken down, you, you cannot get your car to move and, and a train is coming at you full speed. And so the only thing that you can do in that moment is to try to get yourself out of your seatbelt and out of your car and, and, and run. But in that moment, you try to get your seatbelt off and it's broken, it's hung up and you can't get it off. And the train is coming, it's getting closer and it's getting closer and it's getting closer, it's coming full blast. And at the last minute, you look in your rearview mirror and there's a man pushing your car off the tracks, but he gets obliterated by the train. Understanding the cost that he just paid and what he gave for the freedom that you now have and now going and, and, and rebelling against that would be like you going and finding his body and seeing if he has a couple bucks you can take out of his wallet or in spitting on him. So in a sense, when, 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 when you don't grasp the magnitude of what God has done and, and the price that Christ has paid and your response is, sweet, I can do whatever I want, which I've had someone in my small group at our, uh, previously, not currently, so you guys aren't trying to figure out who it is, say, grace is awesome. And he started to tell people, he's like, I have a license. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's not what I'm conveying at all. And in fact, I would say you don't understand grace if your response to grace is just to go do whatever you want to do. I'd say you don't understand the magnitude of what Christ has saved you from. And so let, let me say this. This is going to be uh, a little on the stern side, but, but I think this is something that I want you guys to wrestle with. Because my time in the Northwest, I would say, yes, there are people that struggle with legalism, and yes, there are people that struggle with licentiousness. See, from what I've seen, it seems that the Northwest has a culture of we just don't care, we're Christian, we're, and Jesus is kind of like our homeboy, and I would say that's just horrible theology. And so I, I, want, I want to ask some questions, but I want you guys to be honest and self-reflective on these things. Like the Word of God says, if you hear from God today, please do not harden your heart. Please be honest with yourself. Do you ever wrestle with your sin? Do you ever wrestle with sin? Do you ever struggle with a sin in your life? Do you struggle with what you look at on your phone? Do you struggle with how you talk to women? Do you struggle with the decisions that you make inside of your relationship that you know don't glorify and honor God? Do you struggle with a verse like 
the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you, do you look at that and just breeze over it? Or does that make you go, whoa, what does that mean? Do you wrestle? Does your sin actually ever make you question your salvation? I would say, is there this wrestling and struggle is a good thing? Does a wrestle and a struggle exist inside of your life? Is sin something that we've just given into, into full submission, or is there a wrestle that takes place? I don't know what you do behind closed doors. God does. But I'd say this. If at some point there is no part of you that is ever looking at your actions and taking some responsibility, then I would encourage you today as lovingly and as pastorally and with as much exhortation as I could to please wrestle with why you're not wrestling with sin in your life. Because Paul is saying here, yes, you are free. Brothers and sisters, you are so free. But don't use that as an opportunity for sin. And so as we wrestle with some of these things and what some of this stuff looks like, I hope that you would give an honest reflection on your life and understand this, is that Christ's atonement, his payment, he's done enough, but also we have to understand that he is enough as well. And so for the person that struggles with uh, a loose living or licentiousness, I would say this, what you need to believe is that Christ is actually enough. And your conquest for pleasure actually won't ever fulfill you. Your fulfillment can only be found in Christ. Let's look at the last part of this verse, 13. But through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. So he says, you're free, brothers. Free from legalism. Do not use this freedom as an opportunity to sin, but he says now through love serve one another. Why would he say this? Because there's a third type of slavery that Paul is talking about, and it's a slavery to oneself. You can't be Christ-centered and self-centered at the same time. And so what Paul is saying is that actually a heart that is gripped by the gospel, a heart that is gripped by grace, a heart that understands their freedom responds through love and service to one another. What does this mean? It means that when we talk about giving and when we talk about serving and when we talk about these things, what those things do is they move us from ourselves outward in, into other people's lives. And what the gospel does when we grasp it is it takes hold of our lives and it moves us outward into offering that love and that message and that freedom to other people. And we can display that through our actions and we can love and we can serve one another. I, I want to be equal today. So if I offend people, I want to offend everyone, okay? So uh, I want to say this. Another honest question is, is, is I think the, a way that we can tell if, if, if our gospel is shaping us and moving us outward into a love and a service of one another is how we view Sunday mornings. How do you view Sunday morning? First uh, Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4 talks about these gifts the Spirit has given us for what? For the edification, for the building up of the body. But the reality is, is that if you show up on a Sunday no different than you show up to a sporting event or a concert, then it's actually not church because church was intended to be the gathering of a family that serves and loves one another and encourages one another and builds one another up. And so these gifts are given to do that. And so a Sunday service can be more of a concert or just more of an event where you just show up to and then you grade it. The worship was decent. Didn't, preaching didn't hit home for me. A little too convicting or strong today. Not enough encouragement or hope. And I liked announcements. That was about it. And then we, we give a grade and then walk out and, and, and then we judge it. Instead of showing up going, there are broken people here. 
God has equipped me with the message of good news and with the Spirit to love and serve and build up other people. If I leave drained, that's okay. But my intent to show up today is this. And the reality is, is that a lot of times, the people that are the most judgmental on leadership and, and, and on the church are the people that are the least involved. And they forget what the church is. It's a house of the broken. I just want to read this real quick. It, it's a story and it's an illustration about what the church is. I think it's kind of a side note, but I think it's helpful because it's a reality of who we are and what we are. We're broken people. Beep, beep, beep is the sound I woke to. Everything was a blurry fog and the machines and people sounded distant, though they were in the room with me. Where was I? How did I get here? Who were all these people and why are they in my room? As things shifted into focus, faces came into view and the noises sounded closer. I continued thinking the same questions as before. When it became clear to me, I was in a hospital of some sort. The beeping was a heart rate monitor and the people walking around my room appeared to work here. But then I was more confused. I could feel pain in both of my arms and couldn't move them. A young woman stood over me and started to place a bandage on me, but she was moving slowly because one of her arms was in a sling. An older gentleman made his way to me on a pair of crutches and started to talk to me. It looked as though his leg was broken, yet he had a smile on his face. He said, it's a miracle you are alive. You were dead and you were brought back to life. I was speechless and more confused because I didn't know how I got here and why all the people that worked for the hospital were so banged up. The other two in my room appeared to be a husband and wife as they helped hold one another up. She had tears in her eyes as she tended to my wounds. I overheard the, young, the other young lady say to her, I'm sorry about your loss. I'm sure your baby would have been beautiful. I was curious. Who was in charge? And at that time, a, a man came in on a wheelchair. He was older and was paralyzed from the waist down. He too had tears in his eyes as I asked him, are you my doctor? He replied, no, I am no doctor. The older gentleman laughed and said, that is our pastor. I said, then where is the doctor? And do all of you work here? The man in the wheelchair replied, there's only one doctor and he is the one who gave you life. The rest of us are all patients here. It's a house of the broken. That's what the church is. It's a community of family that operates from broken, imperfect people loving and serving one another. Our freedom was given to love and serve and build up and encourage one another. Yet to be honest, we can announce week after week that we have needs and stuff like that and people can walk in and walk out as though coming to an event. I think we should wrestle with that. Moving on to verse 14, Paul says this, for the whole law is fulfilled. This is something common that is done summarizing the entire law into a sentence. But for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Interesting, Jesus says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Why would Paul exclude that? Simple, you cannot love your neighbor as yourself without first understanding God's love and without a love for him. Some of you might say, if you're not a Christian, I can do that, but you have to understand what Christ's understanding of a neighbor was. When he was asked, well, who's our neighbor? Christ doesn't give your neighbors the person that lives next door to you on your street. Christ gives an extreme example of the Good Samaritan. He says, your neighbor is your enemy. Your neighbor is the unlovable. Your neighbor is someone who breaks past 
ethnic barriers. Your, your neighbor is someone who breaks past your social norms. Your neighbor is someone who looks different than you, who thinks different than you politically. Your neighbor is someone who you typically will not spend time with. That's your neighbor. Love that person. Because that's what free people do. There's a quote by Martin Luther on the slide above. Martin Luther said this, What does it look like to serve our neighbor? Performing unimportant work such as the following, teaching the erring, comforting the afflicted, encouraging the weak, helping the neighbor in whatever way one can, bearing with his rude manners and impoliteness, putting up with annoyances, labors, and the ingratitude of contempt and, and the contempt of men in both church and state, obeying the magistrates, treating one's parents with respect, being patient in the home with a cranky wife and an unimaginable family and the like. What, what, is, Martha Luther, what is Martin Luther saying? Serving is sacrifice. And actually, if you only serve and love people that are just like you and that you like to be around, that's actually more about loving yourself because that's not serving. That's not an act of serving. It's actually feeding you. I like these people. It's not wrong to hang out with people that you like, but we can't say that is loving one's neighbor because that comes easy to you. He's saying this is what freedom looks like. Then he says this interesting thing, verse 15. Wrap up here. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What does this tearing of flesh, biting and devouring, what does this mean? What does this look like? Here's what he means. That since Christ has set us free from legalism, he's done enough. Since Christ has set us free from a conquest of pleasure, he is enough. And we're not to use that freedom to, to sin. What we are supposed to do is to love one another. That's the outworking. We are to serve one another. Who? To do that to our neighbor, the unlovable, because Christ made us who were unlovable, lovable in God's sight. But now what do you do? You don't just serve one another through actions. Actually, your words and your speech are also intended to love and serve and build up one another. Read James 3. It talks about the sort of wildfire that our tongue has the ability to produce. Sadly enough, Ephesians 4.29 is often referred to as a text about cussing. It is far more than cussing. It's actually one of the texts that Paul uses. It says we can grieve the, spirit and, uh, grieve, grieve the Spirit immediately after. What is it about? It's saying that every word that comes out of our tongue and out of our mouths in, in, in relation to other people or with other people around is meant to build others up and give grace to those. So what are you free from? You're free from slandering. You're free from gossiping. You're free from bickering. You're free from those things. You're free from trying to fit in through the things that you would say and do to be cool. But here's what you're free to. You're free to use your words in such a way that loves and serves and builds up the body of Christ because he gave you the mouth and that's what he's saying that he gave it to you for. Crazy. I've seen more harm done than, 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 than anything else by gossip in a community. I think it has the power. It's one of the quickest ways to destroy a community. We are free from using our mouth in any other way besides building up, serving and loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? In closing, I'll say this. As a child of God, we are called to true freedom. Our true freedom was given by a price. I wrestled with this this morning. Would I ever give up one of my daughters if it meant saving someone else's life? No chance. Would I ever give up one of my daughters if it meant saving the entire state of Oregon? No chance. Would I ever give up one of my daughters if it meant saving the entire nation? No way. What about the world? I still would not do it. At that point, I would give the biggest call of repentance sermon I've ever given. I would say, 2019 years post-resurrection has been a good run. Why? Because the cost is too great. 
the magnitude of the love that I have for my girls, I could not do it. I couldn't go through with it. So the only thing when I look at the cross, when I look at God's grace, when I look at the price that he's paid is to go, I don't understand the magnitude of that love. But I understand what he has given and I understand what Christ has paid. And so what we can do in light of all this is we can ask for the Holy Spirit, let this be our prayer today, to live fully and freely to who you are in Christ. To move you away from legalism and away from licentiousness and live fully and freely to who you are in Christ. Christ. 